Welcome to season two of the Made Up Savannah podcast, a storytelling platform for the greatest city in the world. I'm your host, Dee Daniels. Made of Savannah is brought to you by Corcoran Austin Hill Realty, a progressive, inclusive, multi-generational company serving greater Savannah since 1978. This season, we're proud to welcome our partner, Daniel Reed Hospitality, with iconic, restored landmark locations in historic downtown Savannah, Georgia. The richness of Savannah's restaurant and cocktail scene is a constant conversation among locals and visitors. Daniel Reed is home to some of the most visited and popular concepts in the Hostess City. The public kitchen and bar, Artillery, Franklin's, Local 1110, Perch, Soho South, and magnificent catering and events. Home to the best chefs in the South, award-winning team members from creative to operations, with food and drinks that not only complement every emotion, but also make you fall in love with the moment. Daniel-Reed.com so satisfy your curiosity, fill up your tank, and write home about it. The Public Kitchen and Bar, Artillery, Franklin's, Local 1110, Perch, Soho South. This is Daniel Reed Hospitality. When you stop in, make sure you mention the Made of Savannah podcast. Very excited to welcome back a guest we had on our first season, Chantal Odran, and she's the executive director of the Tybee Island Marine Science Center. Thank you for coming back and talking about all things water related with me. We were raised on water, so we love to speak on it. Water is life. It really is. And we have an abundance of things going on around Savannah and Tybee and all of the islands and coastal Georgia that I know you guys are so wonderful to educate people on at the Tybee Island Marine Science Center. Uh, You know, the last time you were here, we were talking about the turtle trot and what a great, great event that was. And I mean, just so many people learning so many wonderful things. I do want to get into a little bit of of your background. Um, You know, this is in your blood. Like, I, I know you've been studying all of these animals and all of coastal Georgia and this sort of thing for a long time. How did that start for you? I started in Cape Cod. Um, I was raised on the ocean, whether it was in San Francisco or Florida or up in the Chesapeake. And um, I had an awesome family that liked the outdoors. So we went to the beach all the time. It was uh, my peace and my church. And I had the privilege of having a best friend whose father was a marine biologist. And so When we were teenagers, we would work in his lab in Cape Cod, and so at a prestigious lab called the Marine Biological Laboratories. And as a teenage rat, I had the privilege (laughs) of removing um, optic lobes and eyes from squid. And so we would catch the squid, we would take their eyes out, and we got paid a quarter per eyeball. And it was for awesome research. Um, And he was... uh, The squid has one of the largest eye-to-body ratios in the animal kingdom, so massive eyes on a a body um, that we can use to better understand our eyes. So compound eyes like we have, um, they also have huge huge nerves, and so we were using um, the nerves to study um, different kinds of treatment you can have in the field after a very traumatic accident, whether it's... um, in warfare or a car accident. But um, if there's a spinal injury in the field, you can use kind of a quick serum from a squid to help um, kind of stop the damage from uh, getting worse before you get to the hospital. That's amazing. Incredible. And now let me ask you, is the squid, did I see a squid on your Instagram where, is that the one where they have this very interesting communication process where it looks like they're lighting up on top? Yeah, they have chromatophores. So we do squid dissections at the Science Center, and we teach um, all about the squid life cycle and their adaptations. So adaptations make us who we are, and they have an awesome one, and it's their skin. So chromatophores that can change color, whether that cell is contracted or not, it changes colors. They communicate with one another. They camouflage with this. Octopus have the same thing. They're most famous for the chromatophores. Octopus take it another level. And um, these papillae, they can um, make them 3D to make them look like a rock or a sponge in the ocean. So 
an awesome group of um, animals called cephalopods. So um, they make us rethink what intelligence is because of, we thought it was the brain. Right. <laughs> and it's a, a cool, cool uh, um, debate that we have in our field about um, this group of animals showing us a different form of intelligence. I feel like you probably see a lot of that. And, and you know, I think it's very fascinating. I, I'm trying to, to take in all I can as far as like documentaries. And, and I just, I really get sucked into like, watching the dolphins communicate and yes. that it's just unbelievable the way all of our life underwater, like how they talk to each other. And, and I'm, I'm learning so much. So I'm so glad to spend a little bit of extra time with you to learn some of these things. And I want, I want to talk about coastal Georgia in general, because mm-hmm. that's something that I know you guys really do such a great job at educating folks on like, you know, when they come to coastal Georgia, maybe they come for vacation, maybe they come, you know, uh, and they have a, a, a summer home here or whatever, and they, they don't see it all the time, but there is so much going on here in the marshes. There's so much going on in the ocean. There's so much going on as like for, for us in this area, the Savannah River meets the ocean. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but wow. I mean, just so there's so much life that's happening and so many different types that we could talk about. Yeah, we are lucky and spoiled in coastal Georgia, and it is why you come to visit and often stay. And um, my family moved down here, and so that's what happened. I visited after school, and I didn't leave because I recognize that there's these marine biology kind of hot spots in the United States, but no one ever told me about Georgia mm. and it's an incredible one. And so it was a, a niche that I wanted to remain in because it's very um, productive. So a huge amount of biodiversity life um, all together um, in, in one area. The marsh is extensive in coastal Georgia. We have half a million acres in our state. That's more than most can boast. Um, We also have a huge tidal swing, so our tide changes um, 10 feet twice a day. And so lots of movement, lots of nutrients going through the salt marsh, and it's um, as productive as the rainforest. Um, So incredible statistics for coastal Georgia. It's why we stay. It's why I chose to teach here. Um, I've been here uh, going on 20 years, and I've been at the Science Center 13. And before that, I was out at Skidaway at the UGA Marine Extension. So once Georgia gets you, um, you don't really leave because uh, it's a beautiful, pristine habitat to study. So in addition to it being an awesome ecosystem, it's also not been exploited by humans quite yet. And so our barrier islands, you can only access four of them And so um, that keeps the others very pristine in nature. So you can do research projects that um, have a very clear kind of constant state. Um, And you can see something that is um, evolving and undisturbed. So what we do at the Science Center is it's in our mission to leave everyone with a sense of stewardship. So if we can um, create a responsible steward, um, they're going to take action after they leave us. The goal is for them to meet an individual at the Science Center, like a Ike the Sea Turtle or mm, Westie, yes. and care to care for them afterwards, even down to the marine debris. That's why we call them the ambassadors of a marine debris. So you'll think of Ike and Westie and maybe not grab that straw or litter as you go uh, along your vacation. So we also boast that we're really educating all of our visiting um, tourists that come. We call them island visitors because they want to be responsible and, right. and and they might just be from the Midwest and not know this awesome world that we are intertwined with down here. And so my goal personally and all of our educators is to remind humans that we are within that web also. And so our um, actions can have rippling effects and the goal is to... Um, ensure that everyone knows that education. So we do that through education, conservation and research, but mostly education, you know, it's definitely where you can see the change. We have a program called Sidewalk to the Sea, where we bring Title I students down to Savannah for free programming. And we bring them from K through sixth grade. And I taught that program for years. And what happens is that you get a student that you met at kindergarten, and then they're coming back as fifth graders 
And they know every species of sea turtle, every species of jelly, because we were out in the field with them. I didn't just show them pictures. I held the jelly as it jiggled in front of them. And I told them where they could poke and touch the jelly. And so they would meet our marine debris ambassadors like Addie. And I think that really secures the connection. And it creates future conservationists. So oh, totally. We, we found a, a good model, and we're proud of it. And um, we always joke that you better grab your umbrella because it's raining cold, hard facts. Oh, Our I know. Our friends might not like to go to the beach with us because we're always talking and teaching. Right. But uh, the public and the kids surely do. Oh, it's so good. And and that's what I am, I am just thirsty to get from you during this episode. I'm going to ask you about so many things, <laughs> including you brought up one of the stories I absolutely want you to tell about Addie. Now, this was a very well-known story, and if you haven't heard the story or seen pictures of of this, it is unbelievable. But Addie was found in a hotel trash can. Yeah, so we always receive our sea turtle hatchlings um, as a straggler, so they did not exit the nest on time. For whatever reason, they were left behind, and um, we grow that kind of weaker straggler to three years old and then release. But Addie provided us a whole different opportunity. Addie's full name is Admiral because she was found in a garbage can at the Admiral Inn. And the Patels are very dear uh, supporters of the Science Center. So it was a quick call over to us when uh, their maintenance crew found a garbage can in the shower of a guest room with five sea turtle hatchlings. Wow. And so what had happened is the night before the nest boiled and hatched while these visitors were walking down the beach. And so they picked them up and brought them back to their hotel room. Of course, as an endangered and protected species, it was illegal. And so um, there is another um, way that you can become a biologist like me, and it's through enforcement. And so we had a NOAA enforcement um, officer on the island that day. And so he came over looking very different than I did. You know, I'm wearing sandals and shorts, and he's got on a full holster of um, guns and stuff. Mm. And so we actually did a full lineup of the sea turtles. So at that time, I was the curator at the Science Center uh, before my current position, and I took care of all the animals and our conservation programs and the tank systems. And so we did a full lineup of all of the sea turtles that were found their carapace, their top shell, and then their bottom shell, their plastron. And so I still have those pictures in my phone, and it makes me giggle seeing the sea turtle lineup. Oh, I bet. But it was because (laughs) those pictures were going to go on to be a huge investigation. (laughs) And so um, it was an awesome kind of surreal moment um, to think that poaching is still going on. Um, uh, We teach about all of the threats to sea turtles and and. We're surprised that poaching became one of the big stories for us on the island. And so we knew at that moment we were were already due for our sea turtle hatchling for the season. But when we met Admiral, we knew this is our story. We must teach about this because our friends that took them off the beach were just from the Midwest and they did not know. Um, Unfortunately, they were still prosecuted. It's a felony and they were charged up to $900 per turtle. Wow. Yeah. So um, they had a multitude of stories too. Like they were walking by their room and all this kind of crazy stuff. But I don't think um, people take it seriously, you know, especially if they're coming from a place where they just haven't been exposed. Exposed. And that's when you know education really works because um, if they would have just known, and it's why we do signage, along the beach. And it's why we try to get guests into the science center so that they can be responsible tourists because they want to be anyone wants to be, but they just have to know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. And I think, you know, if you, if you go to Tybee and and you're visiting, you, you will spot signs and you will see those. And those are serious signs. Mm -hmm. That's not something just to, you know, as, as lighthearted. I mean, there are, there are so many uh, of these just so many different species that you guys are, are are recognizing, helping, that you're protecting. So, I mean, you really do have to take it seriously. Now, I know turtle nesting season started May 1st, 
What in that process, how long does that take? Yeah, May through October. The beginning part of the season are the mothers coming in. And so all of those mamas are, are coming up on the beach. We'll get about 30 nests a season. That varies from year to year. And so she's crawling out of the ocean and she's coming in and out every two weeks. So she's a good mother by laying 500 or so eggs a season. She's busy. She's busy and she's promiscuous too yes. because her her um, population is very heavy female, about 98% female. So wow. within one nest, you can have a few paternal donors. And wow. so she mixes her genes up. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of the season, what then we turn to is hatchling season. So after two months, all of those nests boil, and then we have all of the hatchlings coming out. And then we do nest excavations and inventories to determine the success of that nest. And all of that data goes to Brunswick for the Department of Natural Resource, and it allows us to see our trends over time and the recovery of our loggerhead sea turtle, which is our most nested sea turtle in Georgia. Now there are, correct me if I'm wrong, five Native to Georgia? Yes, there are turtles? seven different sea turtles in the world and five are in our waters. That's amazing. Yeah. We're, we're lucky. such a big deal. I'm saying. And no one ever taught me in school. I was like learning about Bermuda and right. the Keys and, and California. Georgia's but underrated, Georgia's I'm telling you. top notch. So I'm so proud to be here and preach about the beauty of coastal Georgia because, um, yeah, five out of seven, pretty darn great. I love to be able to tell one of our students here that goes to a public school downtown, like, do you guys know where you're from? Right. I was born in Oklahoma. Right. Like, this is way cool here. Right. And this is your home. Yeah. And it's their home, too. Exactly. And they were here before you. Right. By 200 million years. And so incredible. Um, So, yeah, seven species, five come here. And our loggerhead is the most nested in Georgia. So that's the highest percentage of nests. We'll also see some green sea turtle nests, um, very rare a Kemp's Ridley nest. And if we're really lucky, a leatherback sea turtle nest because they're 2,000 pounds and the most ancient of all of those sea turtles. And so it's it's meeting a dinosaur. It's like the old get, man crossing the road when you 100%. see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally get that. <laughs> now, speaking of, uh, and, and I do want to talk about so many other uh, animals and things and whatnot, but I want to, while we're on turtles, I know one other thing that a lot of people see when they are going back and forth to visit Tybee, um, you see the turtle crossing signs. Now, what? how can we be better with uh, being very careful mm-hmm. because people fly through there at a very high rate of speed. Um, you know, when you're going to the beach or coming home or whatever, you might be distracted, but those turtle crossing signs are very important to recognize and maybe slow down, but like, what can we do Hugely. in that situation? So, um, the other turtle that we, um, are constantly educating on is the diamondback terrapin. Mm. And so you are from the kind of Maryland Virginia area. There's a Chesapeake. Just uh, the Chesapeake is a marsh, just salt marsh as we have here. So the terrapins. My sister went to University of Maryland, and so we teach the difference between a turtle. That was a light bulb for a whole bunch of people. By the way, they were like, "Yes, oh, the terrapins." Exactly. It helps when you're teaching (laughs) to give those, and we teach the difference between a turtle, a terrapin, and a tortoise. And so. Those signs are for our diamondback terrapin, and that is my summer research. So I have been um, publishing with Jordan Gray and Dr. Craven out at uh, Georgia Southern for like nine years now um, about the mortality events that we have on the causeway. So we find in um, June, May and June, about 200 hit females on the causeway. So what is happening is that this diamondback terrapin female is gravid. She has eggs. She's moving to high ground to nest, just like the sea turtle is, right? They're both emerging out of the water, trying to find that great nesting site. Unfortunately, we survey those causeways up and out of the water. They think they're coming out on a hammock and it's the causeway. Oh, no. And so the thing that we can do is A, slow down, and then B, give the room between vehicles. Because when we're right on top of one another going across the causeway, you're not going to get over any. You can't see that quickly. You're not getting yeah. there any faster. And so <clears throat> give the room and then you can surely see 
that turtle because she's actually quick. Terrapin are impressive. Um, so it's not like a train. You're not going to have to wait. Like, exactly. An yeah. Time. Just give her some room <laughs> and she'll be able to get across. And, and she's a mother. If you want to think about it like that, we use um, the ability to anthropomorphize animals when we teach humans because it, we're egotistical a bit. We understand ourselves fully. And so if you can say like, this is a mother, she's just trying to do her job. And so uh, if we can give her the room, we've built a road right through her habitat. Mm, And so so, um, it is split on both sides. But what we've done in the research is we've found all the hotspots. So some hotspots that we have are the rails to trails exit. So that's a big one if you're passing through that area to keep an eye out. Fort Pulaski and Lazaretto Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. So those are the three hot spots for the diamondback terrapin mortalities. But she has seven to 11 eggs inside of her body. And so that's a lot lost to the population. Mm-hmm. But what we do um, is retrieve those carcasses. It's grim um, research, but important research. And what we can do is an eggectomy. We remove her eggs and then we incubate them at Georgia Southern. Oh, wow. So the terrapins at the Science Center are those rescued babes from their mother. So we also have cases where they're um, able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So Dr. Mailer at Oatland Island is in this group of awesome people that we call Terps. And um, we take that individual to her and she can use bra clips and wire and nails to get, or not nails, screws to bring that shell back together. And turtles are so resilient, sea turtles and terrapin. So they're tough. Unlike birds, birds can get stressed out and die on an operating table. But turtles are like, okay, you do what you need to, and then I'll go on my way. And and it's incredible to see that we can save a lot of those individuals. If not, we can save her um, progeny. That's amazing. Yeah, we love it. And it's a great part of the season when we get the babies in. Because, you know, they're about the size of a quarter. Right. And they have their belly button still. Oh. And it's too much. And <laughs> we keep them there at the science center until they're the size of a fist. So five to eight centimeters. And then we release back into the salt marsh. Now, well, how do you guys go about the release process? Like, what's that look like? And do you yeah. have certain areas yeah. that you obviously we do that do. We always like to keep it near where we rescue the animal. So... We also have other rescue opportunities where they're just displaced in people's yards or swimming pools locally. So we try to get back to that area when they're at fist size. Um, we put stickers of uh, um, the video of caps and gowns. No. We play the graduation <laughs> music. That. Their last test of the season is to eat a fiddler cl- crab live. Oh, so they that. have to um, to prove themselves to graduate and be released. But we try to get close to their release or their um, rescue area. For the Terrapin on the Causeway, though, we do push off a little to uh, Catalina Drive, um, a portion of the marsh uh, that's kind of just past Lazaretto Creek Bridge. So it's safer. It's not near the causeway. And then we do that at high tide and let them do their magic. They know exactly what to do. We don't teach them anything. (laughs) They know where they're going. They've got that internal GPS. Exactly. It's very good. All right. I want to talk about so many other uh, species and so many other things that you guys do. Um, and, And I'm hoping you can sort of educate me on some of these things too. Now, one thing I did see at the, at, at, at the center was a corn snake. Now I think I saw the snake shedding its skin. I think it was a very fun time to to be watching mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. that is wild to watch. If you have never seen that, it's wild to watch. Now I'm I'm not a person who is going to run to the group of snakes to <laughs> frolic with them. I'm not I'm really not. I but I respect them and I know that there right. are so many, you know, great things that they do. So I'm, you know, I'm here. They're there. Right. But that was amazing to watch. It's incredible. And and actually when we teach about snakes, we teach space and respect. Mm-hmm. Because it is a respect to kind of stay back yeah. and to not um, you know, come into their space. I'm okay just with like that a, space. Right. And and we always say, um, Maze, our corn snake, is the best first snake to meet. Because she's very docile. She's the coolest. She's lived at the Science Center for going on 12 years. And wow. so she came to us from Oatland Island the size of a pencil. She was um, transported in a Jiffy Corn Muffin box. <laughs> so she was little bitty when we got wow. her. She's always lived with us in the middle of the winter while we're 
bored and can't wait for nesting season uh, to begin again. We're on our computers and crunching data and mazes around our neck. So she has been handled a lot at the Science Center over the years. So she is what we call an education snake. At the Science Center, we only have five permanent residents. We really um, boast that because we believe, um, you know, we're not a big entertainment facility to sensationalize the animals. Um, It's a teaching moment. So we also don't want to participate in the pet trade. And so we only have five permanent residents, of which Maze is one of them. And to watch her molt is the best. So she's in really great shape. Her belly looks like Indian corn, and mm-hmm. so she's got a beautiful pattern. She looks a lot like our venomous copper snake in Georgia, so it's a good teaching moment with the space and respect because a lot of corn snakes are killed inadvertently because of fear. Right. And so fear drives a lot of our actions as humans, and um, if we give the space and respect, then we both can coexist. Oh, no doubt. And, and I mean, that actually kind of blew me away because one of the facts— that I learned uh, while I was there. And it was really funny the way um, someone, I think it was one of the volunteers and the way that she put it, there are only six venomous species of snakes in Georgia. And I laughed and said, only. And then she (laughs) said, but there are 40 non-venomous. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, To teach teach little fact attacks like that for us, um, take um, the power away from some of the more kind of fear-driven um, kind of interpretations. So no yeah, we, yeah, and then giving our permanent residents anthropomorphizes them again. And so there's something um, to carry on after you meet them. And so, um, yeah, Maze is a great one for oh, that. I'm sure the yeah, kids she, go bananas when you... They go bananas. <laughs> and they like, do oh. silly things like... <laughs> We know Maze likes to, you know, wrap on the wrist. Right. And we're like, would you like a snake bracelet? Oh. You know, and so kids get this <laughs> access. And for me, you know, and a lot of biologists, we learn in all different ways. We were these kind of, you know, really curious children. And Tell Me Why was my favorite book. And um, right. and we get those kids. And you can see the future use kind of budding. It's and so, so To give them that access is our goal, to let them touch um, a corn snake and Mm -hmm. and to be unafraid. Um, Yeah, we had the the weird opportunities as biologists in school to get extra credit if you put a leech on you (laughs) or to get extra credit if you let a horseshoe crab tickle the top of your head. So, so yeah, I hope that we are producing future marine scientists or herpetologists, um, to get back in nature. Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, all right. Some of the others uh, I want to talk about sand dollars versus, well, not versus, but also sea stars. Cause those it. are very similar, right? They're cousins. Okay. Oh, so yeah. good. Okay. So we talk about that with the kids. Like, do you have a cousin? They'll always say, and they're like, yeah, why is this lady asking me if I have a cousin? <laughs> but I'm like, they're cousins. Right. You know, the animal kingdom is they're no related. different. Yeah, they're related. And what makes them related is their skin. And so they have um, what we call hedgehog skins. So they're called echinoderms. They have very spiky skin. That is their protection. Right. And they just have all the same adaptations and the same body parts, but they wear them differently from right. a sea star to a sand dollar. And so what's cool about them is you and I have everything in twos, two eyes, two arms. Everything is in fives for them. So they're pentaradial. They grow from the center out. And so their mouth is a central disc on the underside of their body. Um, But a really, really cool group of animals. And so important to research, too, that what we do on Tybee is a mindful beachcombing kind of experience. So. We celebrate the small on Tybee. You're not going to walk into the Science Center and see a dolphin, but we might have done a necropsy for a dolphin earlier that day in the field. So Mm. you'll get to see images of that, but you're not going to see a whale either at our facility. And the point of that is um, to celebrate the small because there are more, um, you know, smaller invertebrate species um, on the planet than vertebrates. And the cool thing is if you're at the center and you're literally like standing on the outside deck, you'll probably see a dolphin going by. Absolutely. Yeah. Go into Tidal Creek while you're visiting, get on a kayak and you're going to be 
riding next to a oh, dolphin. Yeah. So yeah. we tell the public that, and that's the best way to experience it. It's phenomenal. And so we celebrate the small because on Tybee we have uh, a city ordinance that some other beach communities also have, which is to prohibit the removal of live animals. Whether it's a hermit crab, a sand dollar, or a sea star, these animals are alive often when you are seeing them on the beach. Mm -hmm. So great beaches like Sanibel in Florida were um, pioneers in this ordinance. Sanibel was famous for being the beach combing beach of the U.S. And so they saw an an extraordinary drop in populations right. because so many were taken. Yeah. It's just like overfishing. There's nothing to re- uh, replace the population. Right. And so on Tybee, what we do with our marine debris exhibit is that we have the live sand dollar next to a dead sand dollar so that you can understand the difference. Right. Because you can take the white test is what we call it, what their body looks like without the brown kind of purplish skin. Take that home. Yes, make a beautiful craft. It's an awesome treasure that you've received. Um, and it's better than buying it in the store. Mm-hmm. To get a natural gift from the ocean is awesome. Right. But make sure you're taking the right thing. Yeah. What we find is a lot of our tourists filling up buckets of sand dollars. And so hundreds um, that can surely change population dynamics. So we educate on that, what we do is just flip it over and you can see all of those animals. Next to our um, touch tank at the Science Center, we have a flex cam that enlarges it so you can see all of those spines moving and watching him take a piece of shrimp and passing it all along until it gets to the middle of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that that's a sand grain and not a piece of shrimp and that one goes out to the right. outside. Yeah, and the so, filtering. They're incredible animals, and and they also have the same genes for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's as we do. So it's an incredible research opportunity, uh, a niche of animals that we don't want to see off of the planet. So be a mindful beachcomber. We have signage on the beach that we call taking the test so you can understand if you're taking a live or dead individual. Yeah. And same with sea stars. You know, we have two species at the Science Center, the kind of orange common sea star and then the gray sea star and then we have the dead next to it mm-hmm. and um it's a lesson and it, it's an important one to again be a responsible tourist and steward yeah and tell your kids that you know and explain that to them or take them to the center so they can see the difference because you know you don't just want to scoop all of that up and have a whole handful of live animals mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. trying to survive because they won't in your bucket and uh, in your car that water is exponentially getting hotter and then the oxygen levels are depleting in your bucket um and i was the kid on the beach who had my little touch tank going but i was also the nerdy little kid that was refreshing my water every so often and so there are ways to do it responsibly and and what we see is um these kind of educational initiatives really catching fire because we'll go out on the beach and we'll see um rescues for Mm -hmm. sand dollars and sea stars. And that's not a normal animal that you hear about rescues occurring, but at our low tide, there are many exposed and you'll see residents of Tybee Island, you know, kind of getting them further into the water. And so they can survive during low tide. There's enough water to allow them to live in the sand that's hard packed, but it's usually a human that's going to come by and scoop it up or even a bird that's going to come by and scoop it up. So I love to see our Tybee residents, um, putting them back in the water to just cover them up mm-hmm. so no one else sees them. Exactly. It's a wonderful um, local secret. Yeah, <laughs> that's very protective. And, you know, I think everybody, especially if you've been here more than once, I think you start to, you know, learn and, mm-hmm. and realize you do want to protect all of this because there's so much that goes on here. It's wonderful. Um, and speaking of like birds and things like that, we've got, we live on Wiley Island, so we've got Marsh View you know, most all the time. And, and we're backed up to the Herb River and, and just all of that. It's so beautiful. And I know one of the things you guys really teach a lot about too is the life in the marshes because it, it can be very different. You guys don't just focus, focus on like ocean life. Mm-hmm. You also have so much like marsh life. Yeah, we interpret the entire barrier island, we say. And so the front of, of the island is going to be the beach and our back river is the salt marsh. And everyone crossing the causeway and going through the salt marsh um, has to be a curious moment. 
to see that and like, what is this? Like, mm-hmm. where am I? And then they see a container ship going down the river. Right? And so, and so we get to teach them um, <clears throat> what they just saw. So yeah, we teach the Im- entire barrier Island and that's important to us because there's so many ecosystems across it. So we have two um, American alligators, hatchlings at the sea turtle wow. or the science center. And so it's fun, funny for people to be like, why do you have gators in here? And it's like, well, great. Let me tell you. Yeah. On some of these larger barrier islands, there can be um, freshwater systems. And so uh, gators are a keystone species. If they need to just dig down a little for fresh water, they can hit the water table and it creates more water at the surface. And now it's a rookery for birds. I was just down in Little St. Simon's Island and um, we went birding all day. And Ooh. there's a pond called Norm's Pond. And it's an American alligator, and that's his pond, and he created it. But what he's supporting are all these bird species, and that's a rookery. And so that is a beautiful rookery. So that rookery in a very small area, there were egrets mating, wood storks nesting. And right in the middle of all of it, a great horned owl with two chicks and all of them hanging out with Norm just a few feet away. (laughs) And it seems so bizarre and not right. And but that is um, the reciprocity that they have with one another. Um, They have an awesome understanding. And so it's beautiful to see. And the birding here in coastal Georgia is incredible. Unbelievable. My favorite is the roseate spoonbill. Oh, I love spoonbill. So they're pink, like flamingos, and then they have a great kind of spoonbill. Am I correct in that they're pink because of what they eat, right? Right. So just like the flamingos. So the pink of shrimp. So the shell of a shrimp, once oxidized and that animal's dead, turns red and pink, right? Right. And it's um, chitin and chitin is uh, just a bunch of compounded sugars and so it's the exterior it's the same stuff our contact lenses are made out of oh. yeah so it's a really thin material but a good structure for an invertebrate and uh, if eaten in mass quantities will make you pink <laughs> I, I, I had that problem one night after I ate too many shrimp at uh, sorry Charlie's and it was just you're right I, just, yeah. I didn't understand Momentary. where the hue came yes. from. <laughs> you got it <laughs> So we are what we eat, obviously. literally. <laughs> obviously. Now, I, I, it's funny you were talking about, um, bir- we call them birders, right? Yeah, birders. Birders, okay. I have so many birders that live near me, and I'm, I'm really, you know, uh, us only living on the marsh for two years, I'm, I'm taking it all in. I, I'm learning. But wow, they are serious people. Birders are very respected in yes. our community, and it's because um, their job is a little harder than the rest of us. For sea turtles, um, you know, uh, a male's tail is longer, and that's how I know right. the females are larger. Um, for them, it's all about the color and the changing in uh, their age. So I'm starting to get gray hairs, <laughs> and I have been joking I'm getting my adult plumage. That's right. in. Yeah. So not only do they have to memorize by sex, it's also by age. Yes. And so incredibly difficult um, and also a lot lookalike. So that's the expertise of a birder. Um, it's a hard one skill. Yeah. So they wear it with pride and they should because I am a novice birder and I bow down to them every time I'm yes. in the field with them yes. because they see what I don't see. Yeah. I'm more of a herper. And so I love a birder's eye. Um, and what we do at the science center is, you know, awesome programs with Manomet. Um, they are awesome birders. Allie Hazer is a local on Tybee and she teaches about birds and she does the kind of dances that they do for the, the kids. dances are it's, unbelievable. It's incredible. Um, I have a dear friend who's a birder in the bayou right now and oh, wow. she anthropomorphizes them too. Like, um, these stilt, um, Black stilted birds can sometimes be like a group of very gossipy women. And, <laughs> and then one will kind of go up and make a call and come down and tell the others. And so I think that really works, especially um, for students, but adults too. I mean, adults make the best students because yes. we're eager to learn still. Yes. I mean, I watch documentaries like they're going on a style 
So we're in this information age right now. So it's like, let's give it to them. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. And I mean, I was just watching this um, this mating bird dance situation on a documentary the other day, and I'm forgetting what bird it was. But I the these three, I mean, there's three of the males going in a circle, <laughs> and they they practice this routine like every day. Yep. And then when the lead male is happy, they can go do the routine for the female. Yeah. And they do it, and then you wait, and you yep. did it work, did it, and then it works, and great, and everybody's excited, and then they all yeah. fly away. It's and I incredible. was just like, wow, this whole process—it's <laughs> a whole world. It's a whole world, and 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 they're adapted for it, right? The males are m- m- showy. They're, yes. they're showy because they need to get the female's attention, and the female's choosy because she wants yes. the right genes. So it really matters that that male has a great stance yes or great plumage yes because that's attractive for her if you want dating advice watch the birds you've got it i'm just (laughs) watch the birds it's amazing all right let's talk about some of the birds that you'll see in in the marshes if you're around because we see a lot of egrets a Mm -hmm. lot which Mm -hmm. i love i name them all uh, when i see them i generally start with an e because of egret so it's like elizabeth or eric or i love it you know something like that but i know there are many others that we yeah we have great wading birds so that's a wading bird they're going to have really long legs and really splayed out beautiful feet to be able to stand on top of that mud and hunt with their spear beak so um they we have heron also and mm-hmm. we also have wood stork they're kind of in that group and ibis that are in this group so gorgeous um wading bird population then we have all of our shore birds that are really important we have um a red knot on our beach and that red knot is one of our longest migrations for birds in the world and they mm. go from the north pole to the south pole oh wow and they stop on the eastern seaboard half their weight after their flight and they time it perfectly to gorge on horseshoe crab eggs wow they double their weight and then they have the energy to fly to the south so Incredible birding in coastal Georgia. There's also awesome owls that we have. and we Yeah, have. there's some in um, Isle of Hope mm-hmm. that they were just talking about that come the same ones. And they Absolutely. come back every single time, mm-hmm. you know, same spot. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah, the wood storks are recovering. They used to be on the endangered species list. They're coming off of it just um, as our pelicans are. So brown pelicans are gorgeous. You'll see them like pterodactyls. Um, I have too many funny birding stories because I've been chased by a <laughs> lot of sure. birds um, in my career. So that's when you feel the least professional when oh, like a, sure. a four foot uh, pelican is chasing you down the beach <laughs> and winning. Um, but we have some beautiful, um, my not oyster catchers. We have a lot of beautiful oyster catchers. We have awesome kingfisher along the causeway Those are that the you ones that see. you'll see on the power lines. You got a lot. it. And, and they dive with precision. Uh, but the I love the woodpeckers, too, because we teach the students um, in the marsh. We can hear them. We can yes. hear the owls. You're never going to forget those kinds of things when you're getting it in that way, right? You can digest certain things by listening, by reading. But in my opinion, when you're putting, um, you know, this animal in front of them or having them listen to it in the field, it's incredible. So and then telling them about an adaptation like, we have so many awesome woodpecker because we have so many pine trees Mm. and it's a very old kind of decaying pine tree that they're going to pick because it's going to be a little bit more easier, right? Yeah. Easier to penetrate. And then their tongue is so awesome that when retracted back into their mouth, it wraps around their brain. (gasps) Yeah. Like a yo-yo. Never seen or studied the tongue situation there. So adaptations are what we teach with. We, We use that, uh, with kids because the adaptations are the coolest, right? To talk about the scales of an alligator. Why do we have eyebrows and eyelashes? Like we're animals too. Right. And so we start there and then we talk about having a, can you imagine having a tongue that wrapped around your brain? Jeez. And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, yeah, cause you don't need it to eat. Right. You just need to chew right here. They need to go into the tree and up and down to look for all of the awesome food. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. All right. So this is the time of year. I definitely want to talk about jellyfish. Yeah. Um, here's what I think is very interesting. I, I read something. Oh, it was, it was on, on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I laughed for the longest time. 
And you guys are talking about jellyfish. And I think we should all get very educated because I know if you're a beach goer and you like to hop in the ocean, like I do on occasion, you'll get a little sting <laughs> and it, it's not great. It doesn't feel great, but you know, I, you, we got to learn because they're very important. Number yep. one. But what I saw that was so funny was don't pee on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. It, we've heard that the old I've wives tale all my life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, wait, we don't pee on it? Yeah, but don't do it because it's going, the alcohol that's naturally a byproduct of our metabolism that is in our urine is going to make the sting way worse. Right. So, yeah, we learn more and more every day. The more you know, yes. you're that generation. I so. can see the star as <laughs> exactly. you're saying it. I so, and you have to because what we do with our, our, our jellies um, is we teach uh, that they're a necessary niche. And so what an awesome defense mechanism for an animal that doesn't have a brain. Right. It's incredible. And what that defense mechanism on their stinger is, is called an amatocyst. And what it is, is um, basically um, a cell in a pouch that has a stinger that looks like a harpoon with barbed wire wrapped around it, right? It's menacing on the microscopic level. And within that nematocyst in harpoon is the venom. And all you have to do is touch the outside, whether alive or dead, for it to spring out, trigger out. Right. And so an awesome, awesome adaptation. So we teach about what a cool alarm system this animal has. And then we're always going to correlate it back to the endangered sea turtle because uh, we have so much sea turtle activity on Tybee. They're going to see a jelly exhibit at the science center and then a few steps away, a sea turtle. And so we teach that this is the food source of an endangered animal. So a necessary niche. Yes, they're a pest to us humans, but there are other animals on this planet. It's not just about us. And so we are part of this food web. And um, what we do also, whenever there's an animal in nature that can be an invader or overpopulated, the best animal to come in for the job is a human because we can surely decimate a population very well. So there's an invader called the lionfish and we make tacos out of them. Mm. And that helps kind of uh, reduce the populations. And so we're doing the same thing for jellies. In Georgia, we have three important commercial exports, Georgia shrimp that we're all famous for, blue crab that mm. we're not as famous for as like the Maryland area. True. But then third are cannonball jellies. And so you can consume cannonball jellies and we export a large number of them out of Georgia. So it's um, good for the economy. Um, And what we did in Georgia was something pretty awesome. Um, We developed the turtle excluder device on our shrimp nets. And it was a single old gentleman and he uh, was actually sick of getting cannonball jellies in his nets for shrimp. And so he took the top of his grill and he sewed it into his trawling net. And so what that provided was kind of separating some of the materials that were getting into his nest. And what we have derived is the turtle excluder device from that, which allows sea turtles to escape a trawling net. And so there's a little escape route for them with this grate so that they can um, not be dragged by a trawler for two hours. And so that can cause drowning to an air breathing animal. But but yeah, we teach about the necessary niche. When we're talking about the cannonball jelly, it's so fun to talk about the leather back sea turtle because they're the largest in um, the sea turtle population. They are 2,000 pounds and they have to eat 2,000 pounds of jellies every day Ooh. to be able to sustain their large size. Oh, wow. And that's because jellies are 90% water. So it's like eating a bunch of celery or salad. It's not very nutritious. And how they achieve that. That's how I feel when I eat a cantaloupe. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I gotcha. gotcha. (laughs) And it's great water content, but they need calories because they are strong, long swimmers and they're deep divers. And so how this leatherback continually eats jellies to get 2000 pounds in a day is by a 16 foot esophagus. And within that esophagus are these little papillae. Like you and I have papillae on our tongue. Theirs are pointed and keratinized. And this lines their mouth and their entire esophagus to protect them from the sting first off. 
and then to also hold their food down. Wow. You and I have to wait 30 minutes, as our moms told us, yes. to not go into the water after mm-hmm. we eat because the water pressure pushes it up and out. Right. And what they do living in water and eating in water is they have these papillae to hold it down. To shut it off right Incredible. There. I love that. And so they actually pack it full. And so like a log on a fire, one is constantly dropping into that belly mm. to nourish it. So wow. we need those jellies as much I as we they annoy us. I wish we could like that. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. But you're right. So needed. Yeah. So needed. So how do you... Um, how do you educate people when they spot a jelly on the beach, right? So, like, if you spot one out of mm-hmm. the water, mm-hmm. you know, what should you do? So, jellies can sting you even after death because of that stinging cell I told you about. So, a dead jelly can still sting you pretty badly. The top side of a jelly often doesn't have as many nematocysts. So, if you want to move it away from children, you can toss it in the dunes or in the water. There's animals on either side that can consume that. Mm-hmm. And so... um yeah, letting that energy go back into nature and get consumed is a great thing. An adult can pick it up by the top and stay safe. One that we definitely mentioned to not touch um, is the Portuguese man of war. They're a bit different than our jellies. Um, they're a different kind of um, animal in that there's actually four animals in one unit working mm. together and, and their sting is a little harder packed. So our cannonball jellies, the ones that are very rotund and look like the Mario Brother mushrooms, right, yes. those are our most seen yes. jelly on the beach. But we do get lion's manes and Portuguese man o' war that can sting you a little harder. And those are kind of in the cooler seasons that we see those. But we have jellies year-round in Georgia. I was going to say, I feel like I mm-hmm. see some a little more in a particular season, but I did. Definitely. So they're going to mate in uh, warm water. Okay. And so um, that's a big spawning event. And so the populations do peak just like everyone else when um, there's a lot of um, food around. So summertime is and high temperatures are always when we're going to run into those jellies. And that's why it's great to our um, lifeguards are awesome to announce um, if there's been a lot of stings lately. Yes, I have noticed that. Yeah, so they, yeah. they fly a purple flag, yes. which is a pest flag, of course, because they're pesty to us. Um, and what all of our lifeguards have on them is some vinegar. And that vinegar is better than urine right. to kind of battle that sting. Yeah. And the best thing we can do when stung, because I've had it, I've had a Portuguese man of war kind of wrapped around my leg. <gasps> and the best thing is obviously to remove that animal yes, from you yes. if stuck and then get out of the water and take some sand, um, the dry kind or the wet pack sand, and then scrub that area that is already burning. It's nerve pain. So it feels like uh, not a lot of our younger folks know about chicken pox, but it mm. feels like chicken pox yes. or shingles yes. because it's that nerve itchy pain. So it feels good actually right. to have yeah. that abrasion. And that abrasion is going to pull out the microscopic nematocyst because if you don't do that step, then it's staying in there and it's still stinging you over and over again. Right. And so the best thing is to get out those stingers. Unfortunately, you can't see them. But if you give it a good rub, some people even say take a credit card and scrape ah, it yes, out. Yes. And then um, after that vinegar. You'll be good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little exfoliating on the leg. You'll be good exactly. to go. No problem. Yeah, I feel like we're having, I'm interested to get your your thoughts on this because you have been in and around this your whole life. I feel like we're having quite a moment right now in our world where people are wanting to learn more. And we're having a lot more availability to information. Documentaries mm-hmm. are coming out um, on some of our biggest platforms mm-hmm. like Hulu and Netflix and all of the things. And I feel like we're having a really great moment where people are learning more and wanting to protect things that we should absolutely protect. Yeah. And what a great window of opportunity. Yeah, it started with the passion of... Um, my elders in the 70s, they were the ones that started this big conservation movement. So it was their heart and their passion, like Jane Goodall, and to start this wave of conservationism. And then what's come behind them is this information age. And so there's so much information of everyone's fingertips. And so you can learn so much by just even a quick Google search. 
And what we always love to do at the Science Center is to kind of decipher all of that mm -hmm. kind of um, information on the Internet. Because you're right, it's a lot. Yeah, and it yeah. can be a misinformation sure. too sometimes. And so it, to set the record straight, it's good to have a, a true biologist with you. Um, but yeah, I, I find my toughest student are these new kids mm. that grew up with the internet. They've always had Google. It's my niece. She's 10 and she's been on YouTube since she was two. Like it's just a an, an whole other group of humans and they're smart. <laughs> and they're know-it-alls. Or at least they think they're smart. Exactly. It's true, though. It's so true. And so what we do it, as interpreters um, is we'll get a question, and we can almost decide at the beginning if we've heard this question sure. before, like a pop quiz. Right. Am I going to know right. it in this moment? And we're never afraid to say no. Yeah. We don't know it. Because when you get to the level that we are you realize you know nothing. Mm. As much as we know, we know nothing. And so there's so much more to learn. And so we're not shy about saying we don't know um, because we possibly couldn't know it all, right? right. We're, we're sea turtle specialists. We're diamondback terrapin specialists. And so this is, um, there's so much more life on the planet. So it's definitely a duty to to be um, not the know-it-all mm. for us. Right. Because because uh, there can be so much of that already. And so we really say, hey, that's a really great question. Let's look it up together or yeah. let's talk it through right. and try to come to a conclusion. But um, sometimes it's not black and white. Right. Um, so it's a, a really great furthering of conversation that we can have with this generation. So tons of information out there, tons of experts. And yeah. so I'm proud to share um the platform with all these new kind of up and comers because um, they bring a lot of cool things to the conversation. Yes. And now I know where to take all of the young know-it-alls uh, yeah. over, over to you. Bring so, them to us. <laughs> we are that just a little older. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's a big difference between, uh, you know, information you're learning on TikTok and right. um, information that you get at some place mm -hmm. like this. Not that I don't like TikTok. I know I just aged myself. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, you can get like you said, misinformation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to really for, weigh all that out. For us, it really helps us in our interpretation style because uh, when I make something graphically, I almost only nowadays do an infographic style because yeah. we're a generation of scrollers. And it's if true. you're not ingesting it in one to five seconds, yeah. then we've lost them. Now, I know, um, like I said, you know, we're, we're in this kind of moment where I think people do want to do more. And I think we'll always need to do more. Um, and I know a lot of people that live in coastal Georgia are very interested in what can we do? Um, mm -hmm. Are there volunteer opportunities with you guys and things, ways that people can really get in and, and yeah. sort of help? I mean, in coastal Georgia, you're so lucky because not only do you have Tybee that has awesome things like Tybee Clean Beach, Um what a cool island Tybee is because one individual can make such an enormous impact. Tim Arnold, who runs the Tybee Clean Beach uh, Project, is incredible and has organized all these beach cleanups. And so a beach cleanup immediately is an automatic way to help, right. you know, especially in nesting season. Um, even our Girl Scouts, as they come in and out after we teach them, you know, to fill in the holes that you dig on the beach or to demolish your castle because these small deterrents can prevent a female from nesting on right, the beach. Right. Um, so those little bits of help along the way um, can help immediately. Then you have Skidaway Island and there's the UGA Marine Extension. And then you can venture to all of our other barrier islands like Jekyll has the Sea Turtle Hospital. And so awesome. If you love this stuff, Georgia is the place to be because each of our barrier islands has um, access that they can give you to this natural world. Yeah, it, there's incredible. so many great opportunities. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you've got kids especially, get them involved early. Right. Um, yeah. a, a great way to do it. I don't know yeah. you guys do some some really cool stuff with kids. Yeah, we do public programming. Um for the island visitors. So if you're just visiting, you can come for a beach walk or a marsh trek or a turtle talk and get the low down in an hour. Yeah. And um, if you're a local student, um, we teach 86,000 kids a year. That's like, amazing. I love it. 
And we had those numbers at the Small Science Center. Wow. So our reach is only going to get bigger because we have more room. That's and right. so, yeah, to be a kid growing up in coastal Georgia and having field trips like they have out to us, right. I mean, it's so awesome. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I did think proud. it was cool as a kid to go to Washington, D.C. when I when I was growing up in Virginia. Totally. But I'm telling you, now that I'm here as mm-hmm. an adult, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I wish I would have. Those would have been my field trips. <laughs> right. Well, I was obsessed with the Smithsonian, right? Yeah, of it's course. why we do what we do. Fantastic. We have a fossil room at yes. the Science Center, which is our homage to, to that world. Um, but I think what we do here is get you out in the field mm-hmm. and get you dirty. We say... Um, you know, that your hands are dirty and your feet are wet, but it's a great way to learn. And so we had the awesome Smithsonian Museums, um, but definitely yeah. this is cool it's down here. I really, I think um, outdoor education is something really special. So we do it and we try to get as many students in as we can. I mentioned that um, Title One program that we do, Sidewalk to the Sea, and making uh, local students stewards for this awesome habitat that they're from and that they're a part of. And what the neatest thing is, is that it's oftentimes because of the lack of transportation, public transportation out to the island, Mm. some of their first experience at the beach um, are students. And so to give another human uh, their ocean story is a really beautiful gift. Everything that goes on um, here in coastal Georgia is just... We're lucky. We're lucky. And, and so we're lucky to also know more about it, learn more about it, and protect it and help it continue to be what it is. Yeah. Um, so thank you for being a part of that and devoting your life to that. It's um, a privilege. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, we're big. It's our love and our passion and our obsession, we say. So to be able to go through a work day with that, we're lucky. So The website's a great place for people to go if they want to volunteer, if they want to see what's going on. Uh, so make sure you go there and check it out. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, uh, Instagram, because I'm telling you, you will see some really, really cool things <laughs> on the Instagram. So uh, make sure you check that out. Tybee Island Marine Science Center. Um, and we'll have you back again because this is just too fun to it talk about fun. all this stuff. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Made of Savannah. The welcome mat is always out.